I called up Sandy Ho and I asked her to tell me everything she could about one of her favorite people, a woman she knew as Bubby, even though they weren't related at all. Sandy's Bubby had a proper name, Judy Human, and Judy died at age 75 a few days back. How did you hear that Judy had died? Oof. Um, that was a tough moment. Um, all of a sudden, my phone was absolutely blowing up with text messages. And it was just such a shock. Like, I just could not wrap my mind around it because it was only, what, like, two or three weeks ago that I was talking with her over the phone and she was asking me about my master's thesis and how I liked my job and what my favorite part of my job was and how my family was doing. Sandy and Judy met because both of them used wheelchairs and both of them focused the bulk of their time on fighting for disability awareness and inclusion. After decades as an activist, Judy eventually advised two presidential administrations. She was known as the mother of the disability rights movement. Sandy was just starting out, organizing mentorship programs for young people like her. I first met Judy um, in 2015. We are so excited to have you here. It has been quite a week uh, with our celebration. Judy and Sandy's first meeting was actually captured on video. They were put on a panel together a White House function for Champions of Change. Next, Sandy Ho. Sandy is a disability youth advocate, and she's been key... In this clip, you see the two women, one older, one younger, perched right next to each other in their electric wheelchairs. And Judith Human, many of you probably already know very well, but she is a longtime leader in the disability rights movement and has had many positions and worn many different hats, but currently she is the Special Advisor for International Disability Rights at the U.S. Department of State and the first person to ever hold this position. So, Judy and champions, please take it away. Thank you very much. It was kind of like this moment of, oh my gosh, like this is really happening. I hope I don't mess up. Like, you know, and after the event, she gave me her business card and was like, call me, please. And I was like, okay. Did that surprise you? Absolutely. You know, as somebody who was eight in her mid-20s, I'm from that millennial generation that, like, is not really sure what to do with a phone call. Um, <laughs> You're like, could I text you, please? <laughs> right. So um, when she was, when Judy Human, like, the woman who um, ushered in disability civil rights at the federal level for all of us, is like, call me, please. Like, what? Like, who am I and, and, and why? It's funny. It sounds like you were running this mentoring program for people with disabilities. And Judy Human looked at you and was like, hey, you could use a mentor, too. Give me a yeah. call. Yeah, basically. And she was absolutely right. Judy and Sandy seemed to both need each other. After that first meeting, they talked a lot. Sometimes Judy would ring Sandy up in the middle of the night when she was fast asleep. She would text and say, hey, are you going to be in bed by then? And I would say, yes, Judy. Like, I, I will be. Like, she would still call. And, and there were many voicemail messages from her that would say, Sandala, it's your bubby calling. Call me back, please. Right? And, and whenever she used 
my my name that she had given me, Sandula. I was like, oh gosh, whoa, what am I about to do? And and what 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 is needed? Um, and of course, I would always call her back. The way Sandy remembers Judy now, she calls her a community ancestor. Also, by no means, you know, are our heroes and ancestors now perfect people? Um, and and I think, like, that's really important to also recognize. That was kind of um, the way of her leadership. It was like, you know, we're not going to get things right all the time, but here's the pathway to, to start. And that was so much of what Judy's contribution has been. Today on the show, how Judy Human insisted on being seen and accommodated, changing the world around her forever, and how people she mentored, people like Sandy, want to carry that legacy forward. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Judy Human was diagnosed with polio when she was 18 months old. She spent three months in an iron lung. And when she was well again, she needed a wheelchair to get around her neighborhood in Brooklyn. She described her early life to Trevor Noah back in 2020 when she was promoting her memoir. I lived in a neighborhood where there were small private homes, and I couldn't get across the street by myself because there, were, there was a step on either side. Wow. You'll see in the book where I talk about going from my parents' house to my neighbor's house and having to scream into the house to ask my friend to come out and play. But Judy said the first time she realized how other people saw her was when she was about eight years old. Another kid walked up to her and asked, are you sick? And I remember it so vividly because I realized at that point that he was verbally expressing what other people were seeing and were Judy felt normal, but it was clear the rest of the world did not see her that way. She realized that all over again when it came time to go to school. The principal denied me entrance into the school because I couldn't walk, and he said I could be a fire hazard, but said not to worry because the Board of Education would send a teacher to my house, Mm -hmm. which they did for a total of two and a half hours a week for the first, second, third, and half of the fourth grade. So The way Judy told it, from the beginning, her life was a fight. Sandy Ho says that for people with disabilities, that is not unusual, even now. She would describe it as very much isolation of, you know, we shared that in common, um, I also have two brothers who are not disabled and parents who are immigrants um, and English was not their first language. 
whatever it was that my brothers were doing, I was also expected to do as well. It was about music lessons. It was about swimming lessons. And I think what stood out to me when she would talk about growing up is, you know, how alienated people with disabilities felt because our society's systems and the policies kept disabled people out of public schools and public life and visibility. Yeah, it seems to me like for both of you, your families were really important. Yeah, I viscerally remember my mom storming into my elementary school because my first kindergarten school photo, they had covered the back of my wheelchair with a gray blanket. And the fact that I did not remember being asked if that was something I wanted, I'm very confident that it was not something my parents chose to do. And and so I, I remember you know, my mom going in the very next day and being like, this is never going to happen again. Oh, they covered it with a, a blanket so you couldn't see you were in a wheelchair? Yes. And this was 1990 in this suburb of Massachusetts that is well-resourced in special education programs and public school access. Um, and yet still, the presumption that my physical, visible disability could not be a part of me um, at five years old was decided for me. When I told Judy the story, it was one of the first moments when I realized that this was not a unique experience to just me. Like, that was what the public school system did. It was not just about exclusion, but also the fact that they actively hid it from view because that was seen as, um, you know, not acceptable. Eventually, Judy Human tried to become a New York City school teacher. And at the time, to get into the classroom, there was a written test and an oral test and a medical test. At that time, all three of those exams were given in completely inaccessible buildings. So I had friends who carried me up and down the steps for these exams. It was the medical test that bounced her from becoming a teacher originally, and the doctor asked her such invasive questions. One of the first questions the doctor asked me was, could I please show her how I went to the bathroom? I was 22 years old, and you know when you go for any kind of an interview, you think about all the kinds of questions people could ask you. <laughs> that was not one of them. And eventually she decided to sue over it. This is a really important time in my life because it would be the first time that I really would be challenging the system, me. Just from the very beginning of being told no, um, that you can't, you feel that sense of, you know, no, absolutely not, <laughs> um, actually. And not only was he going to prove you wrong and the entire system wrong, but in doing so, and this was always a part of her advocacy and her legacy, is that she wasn't just doing it for herself. Right? And, and right, like you don't take something all the way to um, the federal court level just because this was an issue a principle that mattered to her. But she understood that 
in that classroom where she was going to be a teacher, there could be a student with a disability. There could be other folks in that school that you need to know that disabled people could be teachers, could be educators, and in fact, it was necessary for disabled people to be teachers in the public school system. Yeah. And, and after this lawsuit, basically Judy Human became this person who appeared at like almost every disability rights protest and event imaginable. We will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. We want Like she led sit-ins in San Francisco, demanding that government buildings accommodate people with disabilities and shut down traffic outside Nixon's office. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. What happened in the early 70s was really kind of the creation of disability rights. Judy Human like made that happen. So talk a little bit about those protests, why they happened, what Judy was protesting in the first place. So President Nixon had signed what's known as the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Seems like a huge deal. This was the foundational um, piece of civil rights law in disability movement. Um, But what was also a part of this key civil rights law is the lack of enforceability at the time. And so while it was kind of written onto this piece of paper, there was no real entity that was saying, hey, the government actually needs to uphold this. And so Judy basically took over federal buildings um, in such a way that was saying, like, you actually can't ignore us and we will not be ignored. And I've just gotten word to that these people are now locked into the building. At 6 o'clock, this building did close down. However, These protests revolved around just one part of the Rehabilitation Act, Section 504. Section 504 says that any organization getting federal funds cannot exclude people with disabilities. That's got all kinds of implications. Buildings need to be accessible. They have to have ramps and curb cuts. But years after the Rehabilitation Act passed, many still didn't. What became known as the 504 sit-ins is still today the longest federal sit-in and takeover of a federal building. Quite frankly, I think it's going to be very difficult for them to put a lot of pressure on us. When we asked them questions yesterday about 504 and we said to them, have you ever read 504? Every one of the people that we had in that office said no. I mean, I think that they should thank us for being here and welcome the opportunity that finally they're going to get educated about the law that's supposed to be enforced. This was happening not just in San Francisco, where Kitty was at, um, but all across the country. And, and I think that is so revolutionary, particularly in the 70s, because again, there was no presumption of access, of, you know, just hopping onto a plane or a bus or a train and, you know, showing up with a basically throng of your disabled friends who were using wheelchairs, who were blind, who were deaf, um, you know, and, and just saying, we are here together. 
And this network of disabled people is not just a silo anymore. And Judy Human testified in front of Congress. She took a break from the sit-in and went and said, you know, we will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. The harassment, the um, lack of equity that has been provided for disabled individuals is so intolerable that I can't quite put it into words. Her language is so strong there, so strong. I can tell you the outrage of disabled individuals across this country is going to continue. It is going to be ignited. There will be more takeovers of buildings until finally maybe you begin to understand our position. And so this rule that was originally just about federal buildings, it eventually turned into the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was much broader. You were in kindergarten when the ADA was passed? Yeah. You've called yourself part of the of the ADA generation. Like, what does that mean to you? We came of age um, with not just civil rights protection, but in doing so, the presumption and right to claim our own humanity and self-determination. When my teacher asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, being able to ask that and to know that there were people in my classroom who knew that this was a possibility for me. Section 504 and the ADA were not the ceiling for the disability rights movement and the direction that it is heading into, but by providing us a place to move forward from. After the break, if the Americans with Disabilities Act is merely a floor for civil rights, how do activists like Sandy hope to build on it? It was 1990 when President George H.W. Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was more than a decade after Judy and other activists had staged those dramatic protests. Three weeks ago, we celebrated our nation's Independence Day. And today we're here to rejoice in and celebrate another Independence Day, one that is long overdue. Every man, woman, and child with a disability can now pass through once-closed doors into a bright new era. Sandy Ho says this legislation, it was only possible because of the way Judy and others refused to settle for anything less than full access to civilian life. Even now, the language of the ADA seems pretty radical. The ADA does not conceptualize disability as just a manifestation of disease, of illness, of a physical ailment. But it also explicitly says that if you are experiencing a condition, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, that impacts one or more of your major life activities, then you have access and the right to reasonable accommodation and protection under federal law. Yeah. It doesn't say you're broken. It says the world needs to accommodate you. Yes. It says what disabled people experience, which is the discrimination, the experience of ableism, essentially, is not 
the fault of the person. It is in the ways that our policies, our public life, our structures. And as a result, the reasonable accommodations that we have access to um, not only need to exist, but consequentially, people like you know, public officials um, who should be upholding the ADA need to be educated about this. And, and this was the, it continues to be the shortfall of the ADA and, and its use is that not enough people know what exactly this piece of civil rights law actually does, what it provides, how it should be used. Why do you think that is? We don't have disabled people in positions of government, in positions of power that can make decisions, that can help implement laws of disability civil rights. We have, again, this document that doesn't necessarily have an enforcement entity either. Somebody in the community can't get into a building, does not just call up the 1-800-ADA-HOTLINE to file a complaint. You still have to sue. Not only that, folks have to know what and which administration and office to file that complaint to. And then that person within that government entity has to know, like, what are the next steps that are taken and, and what is the responsibility of their particular area and administration. And so all of these kind of like domino pieces that need to happen in order for the ADA to be enforced in the way that it was written and intended to continue to be kind of the, the gaps. Um, and as, as a result, again, it falls on disability community to do what folks like Judy and others from the beginning have had to do, which is advocate to not just advocate on your own, but if you're lucky um, to advocate with a powerful entourage and crew of your closest disabled friends. If you could ask Judy one more thing, like for one more bit of wisdom, what would you ask her? Oh, a tough one. Um, actually, if she was the person who was always asking me if I'm happy, if I am, you know, with what I cared about, and if, if I am fulfilled in my life and in my job and in my personal relationships, I would take a moment to ask her the same question. I, you know, I, I would want to know if, if she felt that same reflection of love back from her community and um, where she thought our next advocacy priority should be, and, and I have a sense of what she would say. What do you think she'd say? You know, as somebody who had the privilege of not just becoming an elder in movement, but becoming an elder in movement who lived in her own home and not in an institution is also remarkable. 
because of what she did, who she was, what was expected of her, and in this moment of an ongoing three-year pandemic, where we are seeing Congress, you know, potentially defunding access to home and community-based care for disabled people, um, this is where she would prioritize. Um, and there is no more crucial moment right now or issue than to provide access to home and community-based care. Not enough disabled people um, have the right to grow old in the ways that she has on her own terms, in her own home, surrounded by people who loved her dearly. If that is not the, the goal of self-determination and what a country and a society that had democratic ideals should be about, then yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Sandy Ho, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my Bobby and friend and mentor, Katie Human. Sandy Ho is a disability policy researcher. She's also the founder of the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Paige Osborne, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support these days from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go find me on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Catch you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.